Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. It is Monday, January 2nd. This is the College Football Daily. I'm Lance Glenn. First and foremost, I want to wish everyone listening a happy and healthy new year. Here in New Jersey, we were lucky to get unseasonably warm weather. And across the country, we were blessed with unusually exciting college football playoff semifinal games. In the Fiesta Bowl, TCU beat Michigan 51-45 in one of the most exciting games I've ever seen. And in the Peach Bowl, Later that night, just as the clock hit midnight on January 1st, 2023 Eastern time, Ohio State missed a 50-yard field goal and lost to Georgia 42-41. to So the stage is set Monday, January 9th, number one Georgia, number three TCU in the college football playoff national championship. Over this next week on the College Football Daily, we will look at what's next for Michigan and Ohio State as their seasons come to an end, as well as preview next Monday night. But on today's episode, we are going to look back at Saturday and discuss arguably the two best semifinal games in the college football football playoff era. So joining me now to do that is 24-7 Sports College football writer Chris Hummer. And Hummer, first off, Happy New Year. And second off, let's start with these two semifinal games. Were they, in your opinion, the two best since the college football playoff was adopted in 2014? They were certainly the two best in concurrence. Um, We've never had two semifinals like this before. In fact, going into this week, only three of the 16 in history had been decided by a possession or less. And then last night, for whatever reason, maybe it's um, the grace of the college football gods, we got two of the best games we've seen this season, period. I think of that Georgia-Oklahoma game. That was awesome. I don't think it quite lived up to these two, but maybe that's recency bias. There was a really good Clemson-Ohio State game, I believe, in the 2019 Fiesta Bowl. That was awesome. But when you think about the high-level quarterback play that we saw in these games, multiple Heisman finalists making a huge impact, high-level receiver play like Marvis and Harrison Jr. and Quentin Johnson, you think about all the points that we saw, like this is this is impossible to beat, man. It was just college football at its best. It was total chaos, and it was awesome. So, Chris, let's start with Michigan TCU, and I want to look at specifically the overall lack of defense in the game. Really, on the Michigan side, they came in averaging, giving up only about 13 or 14 points a game. They gave up 51 to TCU and at times really looked lost. So what do you make of Michigan's inability to defend the Horned Frogs and Max Duggan and that TCU offense really having their way with the Wolverines? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Michigan came into the week as one of the best teams in the country, uh, not allowing chunk plays. Under Jesse Menger, they've run a bin but break dunk style all year. They've been one of the best run defenses in the country. They've largely held people off the board um, from a passing attack perspective as well. And last night, I believe TCU had five plays of 20 plus yards, including two plays that were 69 yards or longer. TCU did what nobody's been able to do against Michigan this year, which is break that dam. 
And when that collapsed, it just collapsed. Like TCU was running the ball pretty well anyway. Um, Max Duggan was a bit up and down during the day, but it seemed like whenever he needed to get five to 10 yards on the ground, he was able to do so. And I really think the mobility of Max Duggan gave TCU fits or Michigan fits all day. And that made a huge difference. Um, I think Michigan played better than TCU for long stretches. TCU just capitalized on Michigan mistakes and hit a few of those chunk plays we've seen them do all year. Nobody's been more explosive than TCU this season. So it wasn't shocking to see them have two plays of 69 plus yards. But for it to come against Michigan, a team that had been so good at disallowing that was just a huge shock. And it, it made all the difference. Yeah, and you look specifically at third down defense, and for Michigan, TCU was 8 for 16 on third down. The Wolverines were 3 of 13 on third down. So when you look at third down defense, TCU's was a lot better uh, than Michigan's, and Quentin Johnson's touchdown, if I remember correctly, uh, was on a third down play where Michigan pretty much brought the house. The Wolverines ended up missing a tackle. Quentin Johnson took it all the way for, I think, what was ultimately the winning score, if I remember correctly. Uh, I could be wrong, but ultimately... Ultimately, it was a it was a big play in the game considering Michigan only lost by six. Another big play in the game came in the first quarter. Roman Wilson caught a pass. It looked like he was in. J.J. McCarthy threw it from his own 49. His butt hit the ground. It looked like at the goal line, there was a little bit of a bobble. It was originally ruled a touchdown. I personally thought there wasn't indisputable evidence to change the call. Officials did anyway. They ruled that he was down at about the half yard line. And originally you thought, okay, well, Michigan's just going to put it in on the next play. Well, they handed it off to the fullback. He fumbles. TCU recovers. Michigan isn't able to score. And again, when you lose a game by six, every single play play like that matters. So I ask you, Chris, Roman Wilson's catch, do you think he got in? Do you think it was a touchdown? Yeah, I do. Based on the video replay, at least that we saw on the broadcast, I don't really know how you overturn that. Obviously, if you're Michigan, you should finish that drive anyway. Like people are going to point to that. But for them to call a fullback dive on the goal line like that, and for it to go that spectacularly bad, I think is on Michigan. But I mean, if you look at the final score, those six points ultimately cost Michigan the game, right? So it is a huge deal. I don't think it should have been overturned, but it's it's definitely not the sole reason Michigan lost. But if I was a Michigan fan, I'd be pretty pissed. By the way, I wanted to bring it up just a second ago. We talked about chunk plays and I realized I'm going back in time. I said Michigan allowed two 60-plus yard chunk plays this week against TCU. They'd only allowed one all season coming to this week. So that's that's how big of a deal that was for Michigan to allow those. But um, Michigan certainly should have had their own chunk play with Roman Wilson going in the end zone and that. That did have a significant impact on this game. And if I was a Michigan fan, I'd be pretty salty. Yeah, when when you allow chunk plays, and then on the opposite side, you don't take advantage of the chunk plays that you have, uh, that's obviously a recipe for disaster. And and if you remember in that first quarter, Michigan, obviously the Roman Wilson uh, touchdown that was called him down at the one. They didn't end up scoring there. They also obviously had fourth and goal at the two, and they tried their own version of the Philly special, which mm-hmm. I thought was a very questionable play call in its own right. They don't score there. Let's say, hypothetically, they kick two field goals on both those drives. It's a tie game, 51-51. They're likely going to overtime if the rest of the game plays out the way that it does. But nevertheless, two drives inside the two-yard line for Michigan in the first quarter, they get no points. And obviously, TCU ends up getting a pick six in that quarter. They score a touchdown themselves. Just not the start that obviously Michigan needed uh, in a semifinal game. And I'm going to ask you the same question when we discuss Ohio State and Georgia, Chris. But another play in this game was the final offensive play for Michigan. I think it was targeting. Do you think it was targeting? I think by the the letter of the law, whether it should be called at that time on that play or not, by the letter of the law, that was targeting. Do you think that was targeting? And do you think it should have been called on the final offensive play for Michigan in the game? 
I think those are two uh, different conversations. I think if this is in basketball, there are fouls you call in basketball um, in the middle of the second quarter that you wouldn't call in the final minute. And I think it's the same way with targeting in this situation. That said, by the letter of the law, and if you're going to go to replay and spend a couple minutes looking at it, it should have been called targeting. Like it was, in my opinion, like looking at the contact, looking at the way he dropped his head um, to make the tackle, like it was, it was a targeting play. Um, I don't think it should have been called. And ultimately, like, I'm fine with the way it was resulted. But by the letter of the law, I think it was absolutely targeting. And again, if I'm a Michigan fan, and I'm thinking of that Roman Wilson play, and I'm thinking of that targeting, I am just livid this morning. Um, Obviously, a lot else happened, but Michigan has a lot to complain about um, with the way this game was officiated. And you could strongly argue officiating is the reason why Michigan's not playing for a national championship. Yeah. Now, ultimately, Michigan, had it been called targeting, they would have gotten the first down. They would have gotten the ball back. Obviously, there were only 25 seconds left. The clock would have stopped, but they had no timeouts. They still had a long way to go to get themselves a touchdown. So who knows what would have happened in those final 25 seconds. But it's no guarantee, even if it is called targeting, uh, that Michigan ends up putting a touchdown on the board and wins the game. But it would have obviously given them a better shot. So, Chris, before we move on to Georgia and Ohio State, I want to kind of put you on the spot here. Just off memory alone, has Sonny Dykes done the best job of a first year head coach ever? You know, I was trying to think back to others that took over a program that finished with a losing season before, and they were able to turn that same program around so drastically in one season. So I guess win or lose against Georgia, whatever ends up happening, is this the best job a first year head coach has ever done in your memory? I think so. Um, Obviously, both of us are still reasonably young, so we don't remember all of college football history. I think if you look at recent memory, at least it certainly is. The other two I think of are Larry Coker at Miami. He won a national championship in his first season, but that's like getting handed the keys to a Lamborghini and winning a race against a bunch of Honda Civics. Like you're expected to do that. You had the best team in the country that year. The other one I think of is Gus Malzahn, I believe in 2012 or 2013. He took over a team that had a losing record the year before. He made it to the national championship, essentially playing a cornerback at wide receiver. Um, that year, they went 12-2. and two. They lost to Florida State. So that was an excellent coaching job by Gus Malzahn. But I think Sonny Dykes, when you consider both that TCU finished 5-7 and seven last year, and the fact that TCU is not a traditional power. This is not an Auburn where you have a top 10 roster walking in even after a bad team, after a bad season. This is TCU, a program that's overachieved throughout much of its lifespan, but is never going to be confused with the blue blood, at least I suppose, maybe until now. And for him to do this in year one, taking over a program that in many ways at the end of the Gary Patterson era looked broken is just beyond impressive. I think it's a testament to Sonny Dykes, who hasn't gotten a ton of credit in his career. He's been really good at stops at Louisiana Tech and Cal and SMU, uh, making programs better. But this is his first opportunity to really take over a program with the baseline talent capable of winning a national championship, or at least competing for one. And for him to put TCU in this position immediately, I think, is beyond impressive. And it's the best coaching job of the year and probably, honestly, the decade. It's uh, it's a remarkable thing. It, it really is. And, and like you said, you know, he in the case of, of Larry Coker, for example, you know, he took over for Butch Davis the year before Larry Coker took over in Butch Davis's final season. Miami went 11 and one and won the Sugar Bowl. And obviously Miami ends up winning a national title next year. But like you said, you know, you were kind of handed keys to to the Lamborghini uh, in that first season for Larry Coker. But but Sonny Dykes in his first season after taking over for Gary Patterson, a TCU team that went five and seven in 2021 and a lot of the same roster. Obviously, they hit the transfer portal a little bit, but a lot of this same roster is a roster that was there last year and he's turned it around and they're one one away from a national title. But we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to take a look at Georgia's win 
over Ohio State. Keep it locked in. You're listening to the College Football Daily. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Back here on the College Football Daily, Lance Glenn joined alongside by Chris Hummer. So Hummer, we talked Michigan, TCU. Let's talk Georgia, Ohio State now. A 42-41 win for the Bulldogs. Ohio State missed a 50-yard field goal with about three or four seconds left that would have given them the win. Another insane game that forced Georgia to have to come back from being down 14 points twice. But I want to start with Ohio State, and C.J. Stroud gets the Buckeyes down to the Georgia 31 with about 24 seconds left. The next three plays for Ohio State, a run for a loss of one by Dallas Hayden, incomplete pass, incomplete pass, then they missed the field goal to end the game. Ohio State, I think at that time, had Georgia on the ropes after Stroud's long run. I think it was about 25 or 26 yards, and I think the final three plays before the field goal were pretty poor. I think personally they could have gotten easily another eight to 10 yards to move it even closer. But instead, it seems like Ryan Day was kind of just content on a 45 to 50 yard field goal to try and win. And who knows? Look, they could get it, you know, closer. They could make it a 35 yard field goal. Noah Ruggles, who knows if he makes it based on on the kick that happened uh, from 50 yards out. But what were your thoughts on the end of the game craziness and, and Ryan Day's decisions over the last final plays prior to Noah Ruggles attempt at the at the game winning field goal? I was honestly, man, I was largely fine with it. Obviously, the run on the first down is not aggressive, but you're trying to put the ball in the right part of the hash, I believe, in that situation, or at least um, run a little clock before you um, take your field goal. And then people might have some arguments with the way Ryan Day handled it, but it's not like they weren't aggressive. They, I believe, threw a slant on second down. That was incomplete. And then on third down, like they dropped back to pass again to move themselves a little bit closer, but the protection broke down and CJ Stroud had to run for his life. It wasn't like they lined up and ran a halfback dive three times in a row. They tried to throw, they tried to take advantage of their highest and finalists in CJ Stroud. They just weren't able to get a completion in those situations. And maybe if you have Marvin Harrison Jr. Jackson Smith and Jigba, that's like a much easier situation to handle because they're probably going to get you seven to 10 yards. Um, if you need to run a quick out or a slant to both those guys as good of route runners as they are. But unfortunately for Ohio state, they were missing three like at least like two preseason Heisman contenders and then potentially the best wide receiver in college football um, because of an injury um, in that situation they just have anybody that got open and CJ Stroud was flushed out of the pocket but like I, I personally thought Ryan Day was plenty aggressive in that scenario maybe you could have thrown it three times uh, given yourself a higher chance on a day when I believe CJ Stroud completed 68% of his passes he's bound to hit one of the three but I thought it was okay. And, and you mentioned the loss of, of Marvin Harrison Jr. And I asked you about it uh, when we talked Michigan TCU, a potential targeting call. But there was also a potential targeting call that was originally called, but then the flag was picked up uh, after review. 
uh, on Marvin Harrison Jr. in the end zone, knocked him out of the game. And the game kind of did a 180 once that play happened because Ohio State had the lead at the time. They could have extended it even further if that targeting was called. They ended up, I think, getting a field goal on that drive to make it 38-24 at the time. But again, the game really changed once Marvin Harrison Jr. left. What do you think of that hit? Did you think it was targeting? And, and what did the subsequent loss of Harrison do to really shift the game on its head? Watching the replay, I did not think it was targeting. Um, it looked really nasty in the moment because it was a full speed collision coming at Marvin Harrison and Marvin Harrison was essentially defenseless on the side or on the the end zone line trying to make a crazy catch with a ball that was thrown up to the moon before it landed it felt like at full speed it looked like targeting but if you slow it down it looked like the Ohio State defender led with his shoulder and it looks to me like the point of contact was at the height his neck at most and it looked like it hit in the shoulder obviously it was a nasty hit and obviously it might have concussed Marvin Harrison Jr. I I shouldn't speculate. I don't know what knocked him out of the game, but he was walking around on the sideline without his helmet, which leads me to think that might've been the case. But either way, it was a total game changer. You said Ohio State was at 38 points at that moment, right? Before the throw, they were up 35-24, if I remember correctly. And then they ended up kicking a field goal going up 38-24. Now, if that targeting is called in the end zone, do they end up scoring a touchdown on that drive? Who knows? If they score a touchdown on that drive, then Ohio State ultimately wins the game. But the, I, if I remember correctly, they, only, they ended up kicking a field goal going up 38-24. So they were still up 14, but it gave Georgia an opportunity to be down two scores. They took advantage of it and ended up coming back and, and winning. I mean, it's 38-24 with a little bit of time left in the third quarter. And then Ohio State in a game where it had done pretty much whatever it wanted offensively only scored three points the rest of the way. So if you think about it that way, like it was the thing that changed the game because Marvin Harrison was the best player during that game. You could argue Marvin Harrison's the best player in the country. Um, I would still probably submit Bryce Young, but he is on a very short list. I was very excited to watch Jalen Carter and Marvin Harrison last night. And Jalen Carter, who was great, was largely contained and Marvin Harrison looked like the best player on the field. And uh, to lose Marvin Harrison for that last part of the game when Ohio State's trying to shut it down obviously had a huge impact. I think if Marvin Harrison is in that game, Ohio State wins a national championship. It's kind of the same conversation we had last year about Alabama losing Jamison Williams against Georgia. Georgia, I mean, maybe they do win the national championship if Jamison Williams doesn't get hurt. But I think if Jamison Williams is in that game, it's a completely different outcome. And I could really say the same thing about Marvin Harrison here. Like Georgia, two years in a row has been helped by arguably arguably the best receiver in college football getting hurt. And like that's part of football. Nobody's trying to take anything away from Georgia. But Marvin Harrison Jr. being out of this game had that big of an impact on the outcome, in my opinion. And, and let's take a look at Georgia real quick. I think the biggest worry I would have if I were a Georgia fan looking ahead towards Monday's national championship game now is the play of the secondary. I mean, Stroud completed, like you said, close to 70% of his passes, four touchdowns, no picks. He largely threw all over that Georgia secondary got them to commit a couple penalties as well. What were just, and of course, Max Duggan is a guy who could could do the same thing. TCU has the weaponry on offense and has the explosive play potential to really stretch that Georgia secondary. So just what were your thoughts on their play? And if you were a Georgia fan, how worried would you be about that secondary play heading into a game against a very, very good TCU offense? So coming into this week, Georgia had allowed 38 pass plays of 20 plus yards all year. They were one of the best teams in the country at it. 
that's maybe two a game if I'm doing my math correctly, three a game at most. Last night they gave up eight uh, to Ohio State. So that Georgia secondary was cooked for large portions of the game. Um, Marvin Harrison obviously has a handful to deal with. C.J. Stroud played the best football of his career last night, I think, and he's impossible to deal with when in rhythm. So that had a lot to do with it. But if you're Georgia and you're looking forward to a TCU passing offense that lives on big plays and has a lot of weapons who can take the top off a of defense. I think there is some concern. Um, TCU's offensive line is not nearly as good as Ohio State's, so I think there will be more pressure in Max Duggan's face than there was last night for C.J. Stroud. At least consistent pressure when you're not having to bring extra bodies in the box, which is something Georgia doesn't do a lot of outside of huge games against really good opponents. So I think Georgia will be in better shape there. But like... Besides Keely Ringo, like you could tell like Ohio State was targeting their other cornerbacks. And when you think about TCU and all the weapons it has, including Quentin Johnson, who's going to be a first round pick as well at receiver and Max Duggan, a Heisman finalist, like TCU does have some of the pieces to potentially expose that weakness for Georgia again. Yeah, they absolutely do. And one name who really was a non-factor, uh, but could be a factor uh, for TCU against Georgia January 9th is Jared Wiley, the tight end. He didn't really do much, only had one catch against Michigan, uh, but has shown to be a big target for Max Duggan in the past and has shown to be a target, especially around the red zone, uh, inside the red zone, I should say, uh, for Max Duggan throughout the season. Quick about TCU, like it's not just Quentin Johnson. They've had five receivers this year catch a pass of at least 60 plus yards. So they spread the ball around in that offense and they have a lot of big play threats, including Jared Wiley, who, as you said, has stepped up in some huge moments for TCU this year. So TCU does not lack weapons to throw at Georgia and waves. So Chris, one more before I let you go, and let's go back to Ohio State and specifically with DJ Stroud. What do you think this does for his legacy in your mind? Five, 10, 15 years down the line, you know, he was phenomenal. He put Ohio State in position to have a chance at the end. And the crazy thing I think with Stroud is I think personally he's better than every Ohio State quarterback of recent memory, right? Like Braxton Miller, JT Barrett, Cardell Jones. Dwayne Haskins. I think there's an argument he might be better than Justin Fields, but the difference is they won big games, right? They beat Michigan. Some of them won national titles. Stroud, unfortunately, doesn't have those to his name as a Buckeye. So what is his legacy now that he's headed to the NFL at Ohio State? Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know if I'd take CJ Stroud over Justin Fields, at least personally. I think I think CJ's probably a more advanced passer at this point, but just as a player an all-around dynamic threat, I think I still lean towards Justin Fields. But that's not the question. I think on an individual basis, this helped C.J. Stroud's legacy. He obviously did not lose Ohio State this game. He gave them every possible chance to win it. Obviously, it was a disappointing result, but it was not his fault. Um, I gained a lot of respect for C.J. Stroud in this game. He has been abysmal under pressure all year. I thought he had the best game of his career last night. He was making play after play with pressure in his face especially early when Georgia brought a lot of it. I thought he played outstanding. I think Bryce Young is a much better NFL prospect than C.J. Stroud, but that kind of made me rethink that last night just based on the way C.J. Stroud handled it. And I think NFL evaluators are going to love him. As for his Ohio State legacy, this is a program built on winning national championships and competing for them. And ultimately, C.J. Stroud fell short. I think this is going to go down as an extraordinarily disappointing stretch for Ohio State football. Um, they have essentially four first-round receivers the last two years, just like Alabama had during that stretch with that 2017 class plus Jalen Waddell. And Ohio State's not going to win a national championship. Obviously, they fell short in 2020, uh, losing to Alabama. Last year, they had a really disappointing result against Michigan that knocked them out of contention. And this year, even with a second chance after losing to Michigan again, they fell short in the playoffs. 
So ultimately, like while CJ Stroud was excellent, while CJ Stroud was a two-time Heisman finalist, while CJ Stroud was near perfect when you just look at his stats, like he didn't win a national championship. He didn't beat Michigan as the team starting quarterback. He didn't win a Big Ten title. Like all of those things are going to be X marks against him in a program with a litany of national championship, conference championship success. So he's a great college quarterback. He's just never going to be looked at as the all-time greatest for Ohio State by any stretch of the means. And like you said, the expectations at Ohio at Ohio State are to beat Michigan, to win national titles, to win Big Ten titles. And unfortunately, in his two years as starting quarterback, CJ Stroud wasn't able to do that. Make sure to follow Chris on Twitter at Chris underscore Hummer. Chris, thanks so much for coming on and joining me. Remember to give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, head on over to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel and hit that subscribe button as well. So for Chris Hummer, I am Lance Glenn. Have a happy and healthy new year, everyone. Thanks so much for listening to the College Football Daily.